And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to uh, the Wednesday edition. It's the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. It means Danny Ratliff is going to join us this morning talking about, well, stuff. That's what we always talk about here. Talk about stuff. Uh, no, we do have to talk about a couple of things. One, um, you know, is the child tax credit. Again, we've talked about this on the show before, but one of the things is that if you got the child tax credit last year as you were supposed to, that was only half of the child tax credit that's due. So you have to file your taxes to get the other half of the child tax credit. So that's coming up April 15th. You need to have your taxes filed if you want the other half of your child tax credit. Now, this is... Uh, Interesting because the difference is that previously these child tax credits were basically a refund on your taxes. So you work, you pay income tax you know, during the year, and then you file a tax return on April the 15th, and you, get, you got a refund against your income taxes. And that was the way the child tax, that's why it's called a tax credit, because it was a credit against the taxes you had paid. We changed that dynamic after the, um, the pandemic meltdown and shutdown of the economy and the rollout of these uh, stimulus bills. We changed that tax credit to an actual credit. And so we started sending half the payment to households in the forms of checks. And this now expands the payments to even people who didn't file taxes and didn't work. They were still getting the child tax credit. So this is why this is important. There's about 50 million checks that are set to go out to individuals, a lot of those individuals, lower income earning individuals, a lot of those don't file taxes. They just, they work and they just kind of fly under the system because they don't make that much money. So they're not just getting a child tax credit against their taxes, they're actually getting a payment this time. So when they file their taxes, and this is gonna pull some of the people out from the shadows for the first time, they're gonna, they're gonna go file their taxes in order to get this child tax credit. Now they're in the system. And now the IRS knows where they all are. So this was a very devious plan. I don't, I'm not sure it was structured that way, but this is an actual uh, interesting situation because this is going to a lot of households that have previously not filed taxes. That's going to pull them out of the shadows into, uh, into the light. So we're going to see uh, some interesting numbers come down the pipeline in terms of economics. So nobody thought about this. One of those unintended consequences. <laughs> Someone somewhere is twirling the wax on the end of their mustache. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't see that one coming. So anyway, uh, a couple other things. Congress, uh, Chuck Schumer is now backing a ban on congressional stock trading. This is very bad news for Nancy Pelosi, who's worth like $400 million and uh, is one of the faces of insider stock trading for Congress. Of course, you know they're the ones that are passing legislation um, and this really came to light during the actual shutdown of the economy because they knew they were going to shut down the economy. And they go, OK, well, we're going to do this law, to sh this executive order to shut down the economy. And so they went out and bought a lot of stocks and companies like Citrix and Zoom and other stuff, knowing that this shutdown of the economy was going to drive people to work from home. So they got a big advantage. Now, why is that important? 
It's important because they had inside information that you didn't have. And this is the whole purpose of insider trading. And Congress is not held accountable to the same laws as you are when it comes to investing. And so they had an unfair advantage. They had information that you did not have, and they were able to trade on it and profit handsomely, and particularly Nancy Pelosi. She's one of the more fam uh, famous of the inside congressional insider stock traders. So it is interesting now that even the Democrats are coming out to support a ban on congressional stock trading. And look, and that should be the case. This isn't, this isn't a partisan issue. This is a legal issue. This is a, a issue of fairness in the financial markets for all investors. You know, the whole purpose of why we have inside, look, Martha Stewart went to prison. I'm not sure you could actually call it prison, but she went to prison. She had the best decorated cell there, by the way, <laughs> for insider stock trading, right? And she just, and, and her, and her, really, if you go back and look at what she did in terms of her stock trading, her insider stock trading, pales in comparison to what happened in Congress. And so this is about fairness and equality, right? You know, this is the, the, big, the big platform by the Democrats over the last couple of years, like equality. We need equality for everyone. That's great. How about equality for investors? Everybody works off the very same level of information. We've done everything we can over the last two decades to make sure that investors have access to information as fast as it can develop, right? I mean, as soon as a headline hits it, you've got it. You can go trade on it. That's awesome. But insider information, this has always been illegal for the average investor. In other words, if I work for uh, Facebook, right, and I know that we're about to announce earnings and they're going to be terrible and I go sell all my stock prior to the earnings announcement, you know, that's insider trading, right? I had information you did not have. So that, you know, th those type of people, they can get, you know, sued by the SEC, sent to prison, right? But Congress immune from all that. And this has really become evident over the last couple of years. It really has come to light. And we've talked about this on the show before, this, you know, the fact, not just prior to this, I mean, over the last several years, uh, this has been going on. It's becoming more notorious in Congress in particular. So it's interesting now we're finally making a move here to ban insider stock trading. And while you're at it, Congress, let's go ahead and put a ban on stock buybacks because Stock buybacks were illegal prior to 1990. From the Great Depression to 1990, stock buybacks were illegal because it's a form using the SEC's definition, the Securities and Exchange Commission, their definition, stock buybacks are a form of market manipulation. So let's ban those as well. And by banning those, you'll also start to fix your, your executive compensation, your wealth inequality gap that we talk about all the time here between CEOs and workers because that's how they're compensated. It was interesting, Amazon yesterday announced they're gonna raise their base pay for executives from 160,000 to $350,000, right? So now the base pay for, a, for an Amazon executive is now $350,000. They said they're gonna raise it to that. They didn't say they, they did it. They just said they're gonna raise the cap, right? So the cap has been moved up. But how are most Amazon executives compensated? Stock. So again, once you begin, if you really want to fix compensation, right, remove the cap on executive compensation that Bill Clinton put in place in the 1990s. Don't care what you pay the what the company pays them in a salary. Get rid of the stock options, and then all of a sudden you'll start to figure out and you'll start to balance this income 
inequality gap that you have because once the company has to pay cash out for those salaries, that impacts the bottom line, that impacts earnings of those companies, and it becomes much more visible when you get into earnings announcements and profitability of the company and, and, and the longevity of the company, it is much more apparent when you look at the salary line versus this very cloudy, shadowy figure of executive stock compensation where they make the majority of their money. And you'll also reduce the ability and the need for companies to manipulate earnings in order to boost stock prices to make that compensation structure work using executive options. So, a couple of things we need to fix in this in this world, but um, I don't think we're going to fix either one anytime soon. <laughs> That's our Let's Make the World Better show this morning on the Real Investment Show. <laughs> Sorry, well, had a little chip on my shoulder this morning, had to get off. But anyway, uh, we'll get back to work. Danny Ratliff, going to join me a second. We'll pick up on markets. We'll talk about where we are. We're going nowhere fast. And we'll talk about why that might be an issue. Don't go away. More of the Real Investment Show coming right up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch and Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch and Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. A um, couple of things that I just wanted to touch on here. The market is going nowhere fast. Danny Ratliff joining me this morning, by the way. Good morning, Lance. Morning. Did uh, you wake up this morning and decide to wear the same bowling shirt as me? Well, I thought we had our game today. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? Yes. Bowling at noon. Perfect. Uh, anyway, just joking. Well, uh, Wall Street used to have what the martini lunch or yes. three martini lunch. Now they have the bowling lunch. Exactly. There you go. It's not much. You, you can't even do that anymore, you know, because it's, it's hard to social distance six feet and bowl at the same time. So, you know, you just every other lane, I guess. Everybody has to bring their own balls. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> Take so, a beat. Take know, a beat. I'm just going to, you know, so many puns. <laughs> so many puns. So little time. And then there's the FCC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just let your mind do the work, okay? Yeah. Well, Richard's awake now. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, very quickly, uh, Brent, can you bring up my, uh, yeah. my other panel here? Uh, just want to go through real quick. You know, this market's going nowhere fast at the moment. And, you know, this is this has been a, a a decent rally. We talked about over the last, you know, 
kind of a couple of weeks ago, market was extremely oversold. Everybody's panicking, right? The the market's down 10% for the year. And there's a lot of kind of panic. Danny and I are, you know, getting phone calls and emails like, oh my gosh, you know, when are we going to sell everything and go to cash? Haven't you heard the market's going to go to zero? And normally when you get these kind of panic emails, it's generally a good time to start buying stocks. And, you know, that's, and we said then that we were likely to get a nice reflexive rally. And that's exactly what happened. And we rallied right back up to this kind of, 50 to our 20-day moving average, actually almost got to the 50-day moving average and failed at that point, came down, have consolidated for the last couple of days here. Now, this morning, we're going to open up fairly decently. We're going to be about 40 points on the S&P. NASDAQ's going to be up about 187 points or so. Um, so we're going to see a nice little kind of pop this morning in the markets, and that's going to start to push this market back up here towards the 50-day moving average that again that's pretty that's pretty heady resistance now tomorrow we've got cpi so the markets are kind of running up in anticipation of the cpi print on hopes that it might come in a little weaker than expected that, that's a real possibility expectations right now the print is going to be 7.3 percent that is likely going to be close to or the peak for inflation for this year there's a again we've talked about you know why this is the case and, and you know you're gonna start to see a slowdown you know economically this year that doesn't mean you're gonna have a recession but you're gonna have a slowdown in the economy because of the reversal of liquidity inventories are getting built and consumer spending will slow down and so supply meet demand meet demand meet supply it's basic economics 101 you have slower economic growth so again you know this is just something to say here but we've had this nice rally but really if you go back and look you know for all the volatility right that we've had the markets are where they were back in october of last year right i mean so the markets have really done nothing now for about five, six months. And so it's really been, you know, a lot of angst, right? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of volatility, a lot of angst, but really overall markets haven't done a lot. Now, that's the headline. Now, that's that's the big headline index. Now, you dig underneath that and you start looking at, at uh, structures like ARK Investments as an example. And, you know, we, we pick on them not because you know, not that I have anything against Kathy Wood. I think she's a fine person and, and she's managing her fund the way she feels she should manage it. But, you know, that's a very different story. That group of stocks has been under a tremendous amount of pressure really for over a year. And, and so while the, the mainstream index, the S&P and the NASDAQ, are really just kind of treading water since October, you know those those sub stocks, those disruptors, those meme stocks, the 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 high flyers from 2020 um, are are down sharply. A lot of those stocks are down 30, 40, 50 percent from the peak, and it's been. And, and so, what's the difference, right? The difference is is that these it's the big companies, right? It's the apples of the world. It's the Googles of the world. That when you take a look at Apple, you know it's holding up near highs google near its highs and so these big cap weighted stocks are the ones that are, are are literally supporting the markets because they make up so the the top 10 stocks of the s&p make up 30 percent of the index okay on a market cap weighted basis 
So those stocks are still near their highs, and that's and, and it's like a support for the market. It's just kind of holding the market, the index price high. So when you look at the if you just look at the S P, you go, well, hadn't been that much damage. Look at your portfolio, maybe a very different story depending on what you own. If you own small cap, you own mid cap, you own international emerging markets, you own a lot of these meme stocks from you know 2020, the Pelotons of the world. Um, you know, you you you've got a very different story going on within your portfolio than you do in the markets. And and this is one thing that we keep talking about is that we've got to pay attention to those generals, right? The leaders, because those are the ones that are supporting the markets. They're the they're the helium balloon holding up the asset prices at the moment. Uh, you know, Facebook was a recent, you know, crack here in the generals. They're one of the generals. And, you know, that stock's down, you know, 20, 25, 30% here from its recent peak. And that's just one, right? So that's kind of now that you take a look at the index, one of the pillars of strength has been removed. So now we've got to start looking at the, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, you know, the NVIDIAs. Are those companies at risk? The answer is I don't know, right? Uh, but the earnings were good. Apple had great earnings. Microsoft had great earnings. Google had great earnings. Uh, NVIDIA earnings were good. You know, so we're, th those are okay right now. But again, as we move forward, you know, into this year, we're going to see slower economic growth. We're going to see inflation starting to weigh on profit margins. We're going to see earnings earnings estimates be reduced. Then we've got to come back and really start to evaluate what we own and where do we own it and what are we paying for? Because, again, valuations do matter. It's just a function of when. But but pay attention here to, to the market. Uh, you know, again, it's easy just looking at the headline index, and that's mostly what we talk about during the day, is they say, okay, where, where's the market? Well, the market's here. This is what it's doing. And it's a good broad representation of what the market's doing, but it's not necessarily a good representation of what's happening in your portfolio. And those can be two very, very different things, depending on how you're allocated and, 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 and how you're managing your risk. And this is why we talk about risk management. We talk about having stop losses, and we talk about – you know, you know, reducing positions at certain times, taking profits, because, again, we're not perfect, right? We pick stocks that don't work sometimes. It just, that happens. And so we cut them short, we let them go. And we also, what we do, we do what's called risk sizing within the portfolio. If, if we're going to buy a, a more speculative position, it'll be a smaller weight in the portfolio. It might be 1% of the portfolio. If it goes to zero overnight, I lose 1% of the portfolio. I, I can survive that. What I can't survive is having 30% of my money in Facebook and lose 30% of it, right? That's, that's, that kind of outsized risk can really impact the portfolio. So risk sizing is just as important in your portfolio as the management of the risk itself in terms of using stop losses and taking profits and those type of things. So there's a lot of things to consider in how you weight your portfolio as well. If you've got a lot of money invested, and we talked about this over the last few days, we've had a lot of people calling and saying, oh, I'm 100% invested in gold because inflation's going to just run off to the moon. We're going back to the 70s. We're not. We're not going back to the 70s for a whole variety of economic reasons that we can go through. 
but we're not going to go back to the 70s type inflation. The inflation run we've got is almost over. And if you're weighted on the wrong side, if you're weighted for an inflation trade, have 100% of your money in an inflation trade, and you get disinflation, if I happen to be right, on the odd chance that for once in my life I might be right, you're on the wrong side of the trade on this, you're going to potentially stand to lose a lot of money because you've got too much risk in the wrong area. So this is this is why risk management is always so very important. This is why we kind of beat it to death on the show. And, you know, I, I know it gets I know it gets old sometimes, but this is where mistakes are made. And this is where it costs you money, particularly when it comes into your retirement. Well, when you speak about these things, like specifically Kathy Wood, for instance, mm-hmm. I mean, she's trying to speak her investment philosophy into existence, right? Right. And so basically she has a mandate. And that's one thing that me, many people need to understand, especially when we talk to you hear these people on all the different shows, CNBC and, and whatnot. Take these with a grain of salt because they have one area that they can invest in very specifically if they're managing a, mm-hmm. a mutual fund, an ETF. And so it's not like they can go and say, hey, we're going to replace this with a large cap value stock. No, she's looking for disruptors. She's looking for companies that are going to have that high flying growth. And so it's a completely different dynamic. And that goes for each and every investment manager you know these guys aren't going to cash if you're in a mutual fund and so i think that's a very important aspect to to keep in mind you know you can really have some great years as she's shown Mm -hmm. but the risk management aspect of it isn't necessarily there because regardless of what the market's doing they have to stay in specific areas right well and and again it's just you know the real message here is is your poor and and again as danny says is that Managers have to do a certain thing. You don't. You're not tied into doing any one thing. You don't have to own certain things just because somebody else does, or just because, you know, Kathy Woods own it. You have to own it. That's the case. You know, some of it. Just again, make sure that you've got some safety built into your portfolio, just as much as you have risk. There's there's always a there's always a balance. Be right back after the break with Danny Ralph. We got stuff to get into. He says, he told me this morning, important stuff. So we're getting into important stuff when we come back with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com are you leaving thousands in social security money on the table prepare to properly claim your social security at our next virtual lunch and learn what you want to need to know uh, about social security your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later join richard rosso and danny ratliff for our next ria advisors virtual lunch and learn thursday february 10th at noon what Boomers need to know about Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. Just real quick before we... uh jump into Danny Ratliff stuff. I was on uh, Fox Business yesterday with Charles Payne, and he, the question, of course, now there's all these moves around the country to remove mass mandates and, and you know, get rid of lockdowns and stuff like this. And, and it's interesting, the narrative is now changing, even from the White House. The White House is starting to, oh, we never said 
that we should lock down the economy or we never said that we should do these things. You know, so now they're all starting to walk back. There's the realization that all this these mandates and lockdowns hurt the economy and didn't help slow the virus or anything else at all. Um, they're now starting to try to rapidly walk this back. Alberta now removing all of their uh, mandates as well because they don't work. Masks don't work. Mandates don't work. Those those don't work. It's you know this is just a function of just like the flu. We just live with it and we get on with life. But one thing that Greg Abbott did very early on was to remove all the mandates in Texas. He says, we're not doing it. No mass mandates in school, all of this. And so the question was, is now that these other states that have been locked down and had mandates are starting to remove that, should that boost the economy? Right? People get back out. They spend stuff. Perfect. So it was just interesting to, to, to do that question. I went and ran the GDP of Texas going back to 2020 versus the GDP of the entire country, less Texas, right? Just so we could see how the comparison was Texas versus the rest of the economy. Texas has outgrown the rest of the economy every single quarter since the lockdown. And it just goes to show you the fact is that, look, you you put these mandates aside, you, you get people back to work. How do you grow an economy? People have to produce first. They have to go to work, produce something in order to consume. When they consume, that's what creates economic growth. If you give people money without producing, you get a demand glut with no supply. You get inflation, which is the problem we have now. So if you want to solve the inflation problem and create economic growth, get people back to work. And that's what Texas has proved over the course of the last year and a half or so. Well, I, think I just also, thought it was interesting. That is interesting, but you also see people are getting tired of the additional taxation that they're mm-hmm. facing in different countries, I mean, uh, states. And yeah. Texas is a country, by the way. It is. Uh, <laughs> so, is in case y'all didn't know. Uh, but, you know, I think so people are, they're, they're realizing, hey, we can go somewhere else where we're not going to be penalized to, for mm-hmm. making money, for doing, for, for growth aspects, for all these things, starting businesses, and which is good and bad for us locals. Because now we're like, all the prices, now we're releasing inflation. Right. Because they're driving prices up in different areas, things of that nature. But, um, you know, certainly a good thing. Yeah, it is. And I just, like I said, just, I just thought the comparison was interesting. I didn't realize, and it's not just a little outperformance, it's pretty significant outperformance relative yeah. to the rest of the country. So go Texas. And, and look, there is a size issue, right? Everything is bigger in Texas. So. I didn't compensate it for I didn't I didn't adjust it for per capita GDP growth, right? But you know, yeah. it's there is a size issue of Texas. Texas is a very large economy, but the growth rate, we're just looking at the growth rate of the economy, um, was there. So I think that I think that speaks to, you know, getting people to work and getting them out of their house is important. Uh, but speaking of taxes, right? Uh, so let, let's shift it because you said that, you know this is one of the reasons people do come to Texas supposedly is for lower tax rates. <laughs> welcome to <laughs> welcome to your housing taxes. Until everybody gets their property tax, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that seems to keep going up. Stealth tax there for you. Uh, anyway, but talking about taxes, you know, a lot of people own mutual funds. They own SMAs, and they think there's like, oh, you know, I'm invested in the S and P. I've got you know five thousand stocks in my portfolio. Um, but they, they lose a lot of tax benefit by that. Well, well, they do inside of mutual funds. And one thing that we've seen over the last several years is that separately managed accounts or what, you know, we refer to as SMAs have, have gained a lot of popularity. And so, uh, some of the big things with it are, you know, that there can be some tax management associated with it. Now, one word that we continue to hear associated with it as well is tracking error. 
So tracking error is essentially the standard deviation between the actual portfolio and its benchmark. And then if there's any excess return or any additional alpha, that's the outperformance. Mm -hmm. And number one, we know that we shouldn't base our plans and goals on necessarily what the benchmark does. But number two, from a tax management perspective, a lot of times a lot gets left. And so we're seeing this shift from mutual funds. And so mutual funds, they're, you know, they're what most people are familiar with, what you have inside your 401k. You may have some ETFs now, but separately managed accounts are what a lot of firms are now touting are the way to go. There's a couple problems with them that that I think are, are unnoticed. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is, so separately managed accounts, that's the way we prefer to manage funds as well, buying individual stocks. It gives us the ability to go in tax loss harvest. We can go pick specific lots. If we want to go donate to charity, um, you can accelerate unrealized gains. There's a lot of benefits to some of these things um, by owning the individual equity and at different times. Also, going back to what Lance was talking about earlier, it's easier from a risk management perspective. If there's specific risk in certain areas or a specific company, we can take that off the table very easily mm-hmm. and not just be invested in this big, broad benchmark. But some of the problems with SMAs are that most of them are a big, broad benchmark. Right. I mean, we see lots of portfolios and, and people will bring statements in, and we find that it, you know, if somebody's looking at large cap, they may have between 250 and 400 individual stocks inside of a portfolio. So Lance was mentioning earlier, like, oh, 1% position, no big deal. But what if you have a... 0.2, position. It's not even meaningful to some extent. Mm-hmm. And there's no true active man- money management. And most people don't even understand or realize what they own. And so what happens with a lot of these big, big uh, SMAs similar to that is that at the end of the day, nobody's actually doing that tax loss harvesting. And even then it's so difficult because the positions are so small. You don't have a whole lot of ability here to go in and, and, and trade any any meaningful value. And so one of the things I think I really want to bring up with this is that you have to be careful, right? Um, I think that efficient risk management just really isn't there. It looks really good on the surface, but at the end of the day, how can you effectively manage 250 to 400 stocks? Well, you you can't. And so and this and this is this is really kind of what you pay for, mm-hmm. right? And this is also the problem with the media that oh you've got to you've got to beat the benchmark index well if i'm and again we talked about this yesterday on the show i got off on a bit of a rant yesterday about selling products and so if i'm gonna if if you're gonna invest in a large cap fund right my whole job my whole my whole purpose of being this is what danny was saying earlier about arc and kathy wood is that she's got a specific mandate with this her fund she built this arc innovation fund the whole purpose of the fund you're buying is to buy these innovating companies doesn't mean they're going to make money. It just means that they're kind of on the cutting edge of innovation. That's her mandate. So she can't go buy Apple, Google, Microsoft, because those aren't innovators anymore. They're just mature companies, right? So that's outside her mandate for that particular fund. So if she wants to buy the Apples and Googles, she creates the ARC mega cap fund, and then she buys those stocks, right? And then you can buy that fund. But the problem with a lot of these SMAs, as Danny was saying, is that you get, you know, 250, 400 stocks. Well, there's 500 stocks in the index, If you own 400, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get the exact performance of the index. And so every year you're going to, you're paying, you know, one and a half percent, one percent, whatever the SMA is charging you to get the exact performance of buying spiders. Just take your portfolio, go buy SPY, pay a 0.25% expense ratio, and you're going to get, guess what? The exact performance of the index. That's all you're getting anyway. If you want mid caps, go buy MDY, right? pay a quarter basis point or whatever the expense ratio is, you're going to get the exact performance of MDY. Save yourself some money, 
save yourself some headache, have one position to manage, but you lose a lot of benefit like Danny was talking about. And this is why if you're going to build a stock portfolio, you need a maximum of 40 stocks. Now, the reason that you need a maximum of 40 is once you get beyond 40 stocks, you're going to start replicating the index. And your position sizing will become so small that, you know, I've got a huge, I've got a position in, you know, some stock that's opened up 50% today. Um, you know, Peloton, uh, as an example, just, you know, over the last couple of days, a lot of suitors buying Peloton. And so, or, you know, suiting to buy Peloton. Um, and so the stock jumped like 30%. The other day, okay, you look at your portfolio and you have a 0.02% weighting in Peloton. So that 30% jump has absolutely no impact on your overall portfolio. So this is why weighting matters and how you weight it. And we were talking about risk sizing earlier. Because if you do have a good winner stock and it's and it's a negligible position in your portfolio, you know, it makes no difference. But you've got a 30-stock portfolio and you own a good company that does well. For instance, you know, we had a 5% position just the other day in Google, Google announced really good earnings. Stock was up like 15%. Amazon reported good earnings. They were up like 15%. We had a 5% weight in the portfolio, 4.5% weight in the portfolio of Amazon. It makes a difference, right? That lifted the whole portfolio, gave us some outperformance that day relative to our index because of the, of the position weighting of that size in the portfolio. So again, it's a function of, you know, measuring risk, but also being able to manage it. And it's also, again, as he said, then with a smaller portfolio, you can more effectively tax loss harvest. You can more effectively manage risk because you've got fewer positions to take care of. If, you've got, if you're trying to look at 400 stocks or 250 stocks, how, how well are you going to be able to manage that risk and harvest this and, and capitalize on that gain and reduce profits over here? You know, it's just, it's, it's imp almost impossible to do it. So- well, let's be real. It's probably just done on okay. These are all buys. We're gonna we're gonna go with these four hundred. The rest yeah. of them we're gonna sit back because they're probably buys too. But we don't like them as much. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the the big thing here is that SMAs can save you some money in that aspect. It does allow us with more flexible uh, flexibility from a tax management perspective. But buyer beware, especially if you're getting one that's so large that it's not effectively managed. And at the end of the day, you may save some money from an expense ratio perspective versus a mutual fund, which I you know I do like that aspect. But, you know, you have to be careful with what you buy. All right, we'll come back. Four myths that advisors believe. Talk about that with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch and Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch and Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know about Social Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. 
And welcome back to the show this morning. Four myths that advisors believe that are true that, yeah, they're really not. <laughs> but again, this is, you know, again, these myths, you know, perpetuate themselves in the media. And it's, and in a lot of cases, you know, it's always important when you hear things to ask the question, why? Right? You know, and, and let me give you an example of what I mean. You know, back in the early 90s, and, and again, I don't have any evidence of this, but I can I can only guesstimate that this is what happened one day in the in the and this is actually probably in the mid-80s. Mutual funds were a rare breed back in the 70s. There was maybe five mutual funds back in the 70s. Very few. And they weren't a thing. And then one day there was a meeting at Merrill Lynch, and this guy walks into the board of directors at Merrill Lynch and they said, you know. Merrill, we've got like a billion dollars under management or whatever the size Merrill Lynch was at the time. And they go, I got this great idea. What we do is we tell all of our clients to put their money in these, this mutual fund thing, right? This, it's kind of sitting out there. We tell everybody to put their money into this mutual fund and then we tell them to contribute to it. They, we tell them to dollar cost average into it every month. And we just charge them a fee on the assets, and we just manage the portfolio, and we just keep charging them a fee. It doesn't matter whether the market goes up or down. Now, they don't get to recommend buys or sells or anything like that. They just have to be in this fund, and we just keep charging them a fee. And Merrill Lynch with it. That's a good idea. What happened, and this was the rise of the mutual fund industry, what Wall Street figured out is they could annuitize their business. So every year when I come in on January the 1st and I flip on my light switch, I know exactly what I'm going to make that year in terms of income. And I've just got to add new assets that year. And that increases my profits. So when everybody, some, whenever somebody tells you, hey, this is the way you should do it. You should dollar cost average. You should do whatever. Always ask the question, why? How is that good for me? And does it really work? And this is really what we get into with the four myths. So, Danny? Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good thing to, to really start off with. And, you know, it's just like, we you know we could go down a rabbit hole on a conspiracy theory <laughs> on tax deferred accounts like four hundred one k's. Yeah, everybody putting funds and being advised to put funds into there because they don't want those after tax dollars inside of of that. Because let's face it, they think you're going to put more money in if you can do it pre tax than if you do it after tax. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the big things, and that's a big myth that actually wasn't going to cover today. But hey, that's, look, even the guy that invented four hundred one k plan says it's not what I intended it to do. Yeah, he said this is this has been terrible because it, it got rid of pensions. Uh, it spread the risk to specifically the investor uh, and the employer. I mean, the employee. So, so not not good all the way around. And you know, unfortunately, we're seeing people's financial health change significantly because of it. Right. People are retiring later ages. They're not able to do the things they once did. But so a lot of myths that are out there, and, and I think that's perpetuated by the financial media, which is perpetuated probably by the big firms that mm-hmm. are saying, "Hey, here's how we should do this and, and articulate these messages." Sell product. Yeah, correct. And and so one of the big things though that's interesting that. Uh, a lot of advisors do believe this is based on a study that was done. Um, inflation damages stock portfolios. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've we been getting so many questions on what's the best inflation hedge right now. You mentioned gold a couple segments ago. Um, and, and it shows, in fact, though, that inflation, the best thing to fight against inflation is stocks until yep. CPI reaches about 5%. Right. And we can make an argument, well, CPI is there right now, but it's probably rather fleeting because of all the different disruptions that we've had, shutting down the economy, a, a lot of stimulus money. And supply chain disruptions. Yeah, no, and we we did a study on this recently. You know, I, I wrote an article on our website. It's called "What's What's Wrong with Gold," because gold really hasn't been performing with inflation. You would expect you know gold should be surging right now with seven percent inflation. It's not. 
Uh, stocks have been doing much better. But, you know, historically speaking, to your point, stocks are the best hedge for inflation. Gold goes has 20-year periods where it underperforms inflation. So, you know, it's a commodity. It trades on things other than inflation, like economic growth. Uh, which we have negligible economic growth, and so you know these are these are things that you got to factor in. And but yes, over the long term, stocks have definitely been hands down the best hedge for inflation. Well, and, and so it even goes to tips. I mean, you look mm-hmm. at what tips and how that's been manipulated by the Fed and different people yep. putting funds into it for different specific reasons. But I think that's another thing to to look at that these places that are so called inflation hedges don't always work the way that we think they do, or when they should. Right. I mean, you would have thought gold would be soaring with the volatility we saw last month. Yeah. And it, we have, we've seen little change. So another one is dollar cost averaging is always better than lump sum investing. And, and we struggle with this from time to time yep. in the sense that we don't dollar cost average per se. But when markets are very expensive, as they have been, and there's been a lot of risk, we will step into markets. And it's very advantageous, especially if there's lots of volatility, because we can take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Now, if the market does nothing but go up like last year, well, we'll, we'll lag a little bit. And that's okay, because, you know, our mandate specifically is more so we want risk management and to participate in markets. Right. I think that's an important part. Right. And, and real quick, though, I mean, you know, just to, to to make this simpler for individuals. Right. So individuals are told, hey, you should dollar cost average. The, the problem with dollar cost averaging, just think about it logically for a second. If I have a dollar that I invest in the market and the market declines by 20 percent, my dollar's worth 80 cents on the dollar. So during a declining market, Every dollar I put in, I'm just destroying that capital. The best, the best, and you're not always going to get the exact bottom, and I'm not telling you to try to time the bottom, but when the market corrects and you get to you know real panic levels like we saw in January, that's the time that you, you've been storing up some cash, right? You've been sa- got some money in your savings account. Go invest that. And so you look for these extreme, these extreme oversold panic markets, you know, and, and the lump sum investing will actually work out generating a lot more return over time because you're not destroying capital on the way down. Because, again, uh, 2009 is good. Uh, 2008 is a good example. Right. I put a dollar in every month and I, I destroyed 50 cents of the first dollar, you know, 30, you know, 45 cents of the second dollar, 40 cents of the third dollar before I got to the bottom of the market. And then I had to spend five years getting back that original dollar. That doesn't really create growth. If I would have just invested all that capital, you know, somewhere in in between November and January, I would have been a lot better off than capturing the big bulk of that decline with my dollar cost averaging. So that's that's the point why lump sum does work. Don't have to get the exact bottom. You just got to be in the neighborhood and you'll outperform. Yeah, and, and be more strategic on the dollar cost averaging if you're going to do so. Right. Don't just do it because it's, oh, it's first of the month. Right. It's time to, time to put the money to work. Right. And, and this it, is why we recommend our 401k plan manager that's on, on our website. So if you go to retirement, uh, our retirement tab on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com, go to participant solutions. We have a 401k plan manager there for you, has different models you can follow. And we tell you, um, you know, hold all your cash right now in stable value or cash for the time being. And we'll tell you when to put it into the market. So- Again, that's you know kind of the premise that we've been here for the last you know month or so during this volatility. Yeah. So so I know this one you're going to love, Lance. So options just add risk to a portfolio. Yes. No. Maybe. Possibly. Yeah. Well, and, and this goes back to financial <laughs> literacy or personal finance 101. Unfortunately, <laughs> right. these are things that aren't taught. Right. But but there are many ways that we can actually hedge against mm-hmm. a position, protect, buy an insurance policy, so to speak. Right. Or create additional income by utilizing options. Yep. And that's one thing that, you know, it's not for the everyday investor, I don't think. But that's probably why it does have a bad rap. Right. Look, guns have a bad rap. 
Right. Until you need one. Well, no, the, the point is, is guns have a bad rap. But people say, well, guns kill people. No, guns don't kill people. People kill people just using guns. Options are a loaded gun. You can either use it properly and it can protect you and your portfolio. True. Or you can misuse them and you can destroy your portfolio. And, you know, that's that's just, again, it's just, you know, with everything in the market, you can do that with stocks too, by the way. Um but with, with everything in the market, these are all tools. They're there to be used. You just have to understand the rules and to use them properly. And if you use them properly, you can create benefit for yourself. You can hedge risk. You can create income. You can uh, use you, you know sell put options as an example to enter into a position at a lower price and get paid while you wait for the entry price. So there's there's a lot of benefit to using options. Unfortunately, most people just use options to speculate, and options expire worthless. So Again, you invest you know thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars into an option that goes in the wrong direction. You're going to lose thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and you don't get a chance to get it back. So that's just you know that's the important thing. That's part of it, yeah. yeah. That's that's what most people don't understand, or they get these lofty expectations and think that oh we're going to hit the moon here, so we're going to continue to do this. Right, and that's where you get you get hung out to dry. So I know you're going to love this last one, Lance. Um, global diversification. Um, reduces risk and increases returns. And we've talked about this specifically over and over again, and basically on modern portfolio theory on how to invest and, and how you, know, you need to be more strategic than that. But studies show, and actually what well, the numbers show, mm-hmm. over the last couple of decades, that's just not been the case. No, and look, if you just want to run the analysis yourself, go go just pick, you know, put 50% of a play portfolio in SPY and 50% in EEM and track it since 2009 versus the the S&P 500. And this is yeah. why we've not been we haven't owned international stocks. We we will trade them from time to time when they get deep oversold conditions, but we have not had global diversification in our portfolio for really since about 2006 because it just hasn't worked. And you know, it's it's you know, when you're trying to create performance, the more stuff if you have in your portfolio that's basically a boat anchor and think about your you know, think about your portfolio as a boat, right? You want to kind of cross the lake. Well, you know, right now it's been all domestic stocks. If you've been all domestic stocks, you're cruising right along the lake, right? But you want to have some emerging markets, great. Throw a boat anchor out. If you want some international, throw another boat anchor out. You want some, you know, uh, you know, small cap and mid cap, throw another boat anchor out. And and you'll still get across the lake dragging anchors. It's just going to get really tough at some point. And that's you know, this is the point. Diversification is another one of those products that are sold to you by advisors oh yeah we globally diversify to to reduce risk it's really telling you that they don't have a strategy for analyzing risk in a portfolio so they just buy a little of everything and just hope something goes up oh that's just the way you have to do it sorry guys that part went down (laughs) yeah so and you know it all kind of works out in the wash right so you know be careful what you pay for anyway uh, wraps up show today, Danny. So yes, sir. T- tomorrow, Social Security webinar, Richard and I are going to be doing. It's going to be at 12 o'clock Central Standard Time. So if you haven't signed up, go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Love to have you there. We'll talk about everything you need to know about Social Security, how you should take it, best claiming strategies, and answer some questions there at the end. Yep. And bring caffeine. And we'll be back tomorrow <laughs> for more of the Real Investment Show. Talking about CPI tomorrow because that's the report we get out uh, in the morning. And what does that mean for the markets? That's tomorrow morning right here on The Real Investment Show. In the meantime, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog posts, newsletters, more. It's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.